Hello, Acquired LPs. We had the rare opportunity to interview Jay Hogue, who is the founder of TCV, the firm originally known as Technology Crossover Ventures. This was so cool. Back on our Altimeter episode, Brad Gerstner referenced Jay and TCV as the original crossover investors and still among the very, very best out there. TCV was founded back in 1995, and they were the first firm that invested in both public and private companies at the same time from the same fund. Jay has some awesome war stories that we get into with companies like Netflix, which we talk a whole lot about with him. Uh, Spotify, Zillow, Expedia, Facebook, Airbnb, Peloton, many, many others. Yes. And the firm obviously looks much bigger today, very different than it did in 1995. They have over $20 billion in assets under management, 50 people on the investment team, 140 employees total. We recorded this episode live at a private summit that TCV had for their portfolio with all their chief product officers. And uh, we asked them if we could release it as an acquired LP episode, and they were kind enough to let us. So this interview covers uh, a little bit of firm history, some pivotal moments where important companies in our world today almost died amidst big macroeconomic changes, which... Gosh, I don't know. What's that like? (laughs) Yeah. And we also touched on the topic of how to think about the magnitude of future-looking product investments that a company should make. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter now with that this is not investment advice do your own research and 
on to our interview with Jay. It's a rare chance that we get to interview legendary founder old, of TCD. Old people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, but no. it is. I mean, I know we're sort of in a closed room here, but this doesn't happen very often. You tend not to be on stage despite having an unbelievable amount of experience to share. And literally the magnitude of your impact goes to um, our hotel rooms tonight. <laughs> ben texted me a, a photo when you checked in. Yeah, so it's, it, it is wild walking into the hotel. And of course, the TV's on because it's a hotel and they always have the TV on with some promotional something when you walk in. So the first thing you do is you grab the remote and you're like, shh, and you go to turn it off. And I went to push the power button, but the most prominent button on the remote is not a power button, but a Netflix button a standard button on a remote control shipped by an OEM who makes a television. So that had to be the investment thesis, right? When you were... <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally, yeah. I mean, there's one That was company. my idea. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be unfathomable based on where that company started and slowly inched its way to literally be the one brand on, a, a TV, on many TV remote controls today. Yeah. Wild. So... Before we get into Netflix and a lot of companies that you've worked closely with and building TCV in your own entrepreneurial journey, we wanted to start back with your upbringing. So over to you. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what your family was like, and we'll see some of the threads come through with that. Okay. Well, it's great being here. Thank you for having me. I'll try not to bore you too much. I guess somebody would be the least likely person to ultimately be a technology investor for now 40 plus years to date myself. So I grew up in the Midwest, you know, was in high school in the 70s, graduated from college in 80. There was no technology. If you think back, not only was the internet not commercialized and, and you know, there were no mobile phones. It there was no internet. It no. wasn't until 1980 that the fax machine was invented and the VCR so not only do we not have email as an example, we didn't have voicemail. I grew up outside Chicago and then went to a high school in a little town in Wisconsin, 5,000 people. And the technology we had was a stoplight. And halfway through high school, they installed a second stoplight. Totally blew people's minds. People were, people were just cruising through, just ignoring it. 100% year-over-year growth. Yeah, didn't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Didn't know what to do about it. So in college, there were no, you know, no PCs. Uh, and even in business school, just to, again, date myself, I went straight on from undergrad to business school. So 81, 82, University of Michigan Business School, the University of Michigan. We, we won't talk about okay, that. We'll get, we'll, get to the, we'll get to the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry in a minute. I'm, I'm a Buckeye. Um, we learned to program on punch cards. So these were mainframes. You, it's an arcane thing. There was no, you know, there was no personal computer. So it was a, it was a very strange, strange one. Uh, time before most of technology. The, how did you end up going from that environment to first to Wall Street? You joined City, right? That, right after business school? Yeah, so I'd describe it as a sequence of very fortunate events, as opposed to the, the book's unfortunate events, and a series of lucky moves slash choices and I'll try to do it fairly briefly. So actually, the, the first luck was I grew up in kind of a middle-class Midwestern family and for whatever reason had, had a good work ethic. And so middle-class being I was going to go to college, which is sort of born on second base as opposed to hitting a double. So that was the first bit of luck. Meandered through my college life and had one single offer coming out of college, which was to sell insurance and decided, meh, maybe that's not the thing. So I applied then to business school and law school. I got into a better business school than law school. At the time, the, the rankings were sort of 
parents wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, in that order. So didn't go in a lot, went to business school, and then was kind of meandering through that. And I had a professor named Dave Brophy, who taught investments class that got me interested, got me off my kind of full college and business school experience to, to start to focus. And then applied to 102 jobs coming out of business school, had three offers, and one of which was being a research analyst at City, became Chancellor Capital over time, so 1982. And being an uh, equity research analyst. Equity research analyst, old-fashioned analyst, which you know, ultimately gives you a lot of fundamental grounding. And then the additional piece of luck was I wasn't assigned when I started to any industry. It was just show up. And they offered, I could cover paper forest products. This is covering public stocks. Paper forest products, which at the time... Uh, so it's, it's like Warehouser. Yeah, I don't even remember who, who it was. Yeah. Publishing, and the, the public universe of publishing companies at the time was McGraw-Hill and Standard & Poor's, or technology. And I like to say I, I knew equal amounts about all three, which was to say nothing. And it was not like sexy to pick technology, right? Like if you, it was not. It was not like an obvious, oh, I should go do that. No. You know, and actually, it wasn't sexy. It also wasn't necessarily sexy to go into the investment business. One of my old bosses said his biggest professional accomplishment was keeping his job between 1974 and 1982, because it, it was generally the markets moved sideways. 82 was kind of a bear market in um, I mean, these were the small days, cap. I mean, we think about now, if I'm remembering right, these are the days of like mid-teens interest rates, right? Yes. So yeah, in addition, <laughs> I mean, in addition people to- People are freaking out about the world going to yeah. 4.5%. So at the time, Ronald Reagan was president, and my first office job was the summer of 81 between business school years at an investment firm. And I vividly remember, short-term interest rates were 18%. Wow. My God. <laughs> That'll keep home prices down. That'll keep a lot of things down. Yeah. That, that will make the investment management business a lot less sexy. <laughs> How did you start first investing in private companies? Was that just natural of technology being such a young industry? Yeah, so again, started as a research analyst at City. My clients were portfolio managers on the institutional side and on the high net worth side, and did that for three years. And then in 85, joined the venture group at the time, which invested in funds, venture funds, directly invested in companies, and then had a small cap public effort. And then over the years, I ended up running the technology portion of that. So that was the business model, and at the time, the prominent venture funds include like Kleiner Perkins. And so my contemporaries were folks like John Doerr and Brooke Byers were older. So it was more Kevin Compton and Doug McKenzie at Kleiner. Benchmark had not started. Yeah, uh, TBI was, and know, Merrill Pickard. Andy Ratcliffe at, at Merrill Pickard, Bruce Dunleavy there as well. Bob Cagle came from TBI. As a side note, it is amazing how many of these are no longer brands. Like we think about a lot of venture firms as these big, enduring things, but like the venture landscape is just littered with people that raised fund one, fund two. Even the enduring firms stopped and new firms were born. Yeah, although obviously some, I have the world of respect for Sequoia, who's done multi-generational shifts over a very long period of time. When the internet bubble burst and subsequent, the fact that we survived, you know, one of the biggest professional accomplishments sometimes is like literally just surviving. So here we are in our 27th year. And it sounds maybe overly dramatic, but it's not always clear because there are a lot of funds that either perish firms or peak and then have, have a long kind of gestation period of, of less than stellar. Well, we're going to talk about a, a company or two that had some of that journey in a minute. What was the first time that you saw success 
in doing public and private investing at the same time, and you thought, I might be onto something. Like there really could be a durable future here because I'm learning things from doing this that I wouldn't learn by doing just one or the other. Yeah. So I'd say the first, you think about the late. 80s probably, which actually when I met Reed Hastings from Pure Software, at Pure Software at the time. Because um, that was a chancellor investment? It was. was his, yeah. his Reed's first company? Yes, yes. It's really important to be lucky early on. And then, <laughs> and then just keep, keep following great entrepreneurs around. One of the big themes you know, on Acquired, even to this, this day, it's still true today, but must have been so much more back then, was it's a small number of people who create the huge amount of value in this world. And most people don't know that Reed had a company before Netflix. Yeah. And getting to know him then gave you a, gr- a great seat for later. Yeah. And so I, uh, again, we had plenty of not great investments, but some of the way back in the 80s investment, we invested in Sybase, which was the original online transaction processing relational database. Ingress, which was a successful but less successful than Oracle relational database. Intuit, which kind of crazy. They, Intuit's business at the time, They've ultimately sold off and totally transformed the company. The reason I go through some of those, those ended up being successful private companies and then successful companies you know, in the public markets as well. And so that was, oh, okay, you can, the, the companies that are able to sustain rapid growth over a long period of time, including in the public market, can generate substantial returns. Was it partially because you were within a large Wall Street investment bank that there wasn't this pressure from the LP base in the funds to distribute stock from private companies as they went public and you were able to keep going with them? If you're spending all this time identifying what the most promising trends are within technology, identifying the best companies, investing in a bunch of them privately, their growth prospects don't end when they become public. So maybe you should be patient, be long-term partners with those companies. But also that all that work can lead in periods of dislocation to an opportunity where you might deploy capital publicly via pipe or just taking a stake or taking a stake and becoming an active board member. It's so economically rational, in part because markets are volatile and things go in and out of investor favor. So it makes total sense. The receptivity on the part of the investment community varies by it's well-liked and understood in bull markets, and it's generally not liked in periods like right now, where everything's under intense pressure. And anytime you're doing anything that's a little bit divergent or disruptive, you get lots of rope in bull runs. And then if you took a risk, then that's the opportunity to get penalized is during those those down periods. And so I think it's so interesting to study the down periods and, and the, the moves people make and the risks people think are worth taking in those down periods. And I want to zoom in in 2000, Netflix is getting ready to go public, but they're not going to be cash flow positive before they go public and the market's falling apart. And if, if my history is right, you put together a, a financing for Netflix that it might be fair to say it saved the company and the company wouldn't exist today without this financing coming together. And I'm curious, and when you think about those moments where you know tens of billions of dollars of, of value is created in the future, but of course you don't know that, but you're willing to take a, a bet that even though everyone's looking at me with the most scrutiny that they ever could, I'm still going to take this risk. How do you analyze a situation like that? Of course, we, we, we wish they all worked out uh, <laughs> the way Netflix did. You know, experience does have some benefits, and I was, I was less experienced then. But you know, the ability to be balanced in one's view, which often can mean contrarian, you know, not consensus, and kind of ignore 
conventional wisdom or ignore the headlines, because right now is an example, as was true then, the press headlines were just horrific around all things technology. And just to set the stage for it, my old firm, we had backed Reed Hastings when he was at Pure Software, which was a very successful software company back in the day. They did error checking software for programmers, acquired another company, went public, and they ultimately got, uh, I think it's still part of IBM, IBM's efforts, software efforts. You know, Netflix did ever increasing financings from 98, 99, 2000, raised a lot of money and filed to go public in March of 2000 on the heels of 300 plus tech IPOs in 1999, kind of crazy. And then the nuclear winter hit for all things internet related, which is you know, a little crazy to think about today because you have Amazon, you have Netflix. I mean, those businesses weren't bad. They were just subject to investor psychology swings. Which is important. The dogs were eating the dog food. Like people were loving these services and yet everything was overvalued. And so you had this weird situation where like, as long as you could survive, people kept wanting your product, but you had to survive. Yes. Now there were, there were a lot of companies from that era that didn't. I mean, there were some bad ideas funded. Uh, there were some good ideas funded that their order book just went away. We invested in a couple of companies that helped people build websites, which sounds arcane, but, and then a lot of the world didn't need websites built short term. But I do think it's one of the benefits of if you, and for all people focused on the consumer and focused on products, if you have a compelling value prop that is quite evident, then it is worth funding, even if the world doesn't think it's worth funding. And so the story I tell, which is true, so they pulled the IPO, Netflix was pretty close to breaking even from a free cash flow standpoint, which is the only really important measure of being break even, but needed additional capital. And in our conversations with, with Reed, we said, well, we will provide that capital, but you may not love the valuation. So please go out and do a market check on what others might value Netflix at. And the, the psychology was so negative that the answer was nobody would provide any capital. So we did a recap financing where we, you know, we and others who participated were able to increase our ownership. Ironically, the company never really needed the capital. They turned free cash flow positive pretty quickly. So mm. I'm glad their forecasts were off. <laughs> um, and then they went public in 2002. Well, even there, the stock traded down on the IPO. And it was... How long did it take before that investment became clear that it was truly a great investment? Eight years probably. It wasn't until 2009, 2010. So the investment was originally on the DVD model, which I'm happy to go into. And then the company started investing in streaming in 05, although originally it was actually digital delivery because it, it wasn't clear whether a download model or a streaming model was going to be the preferred choice. I remember like installing Silverlight so that oh, yeah. I could download the, the digital delivery yes. of the Netflix movies. Yeah, one of, it's not doesn't get a lot of headlines now, but so we started investing in streaming in 05 and, and part of it was read as a student of um, technology history and things like Innovator's Dilemma from Clayton Christensen, if you, you know, read the book, and had observed, and not to pick on like AOL, which was a original online service, and it was dial-up. And they, as broadband occurred, they didn't forward invest. They just kind of harvested the they also sent a lot of discs through the mail. Yeah, no, and, and, and so Netflix, you know, we chose to forward invest early, and, and it wasn't clear you knew how big streaming was going to be, but the cost of missing it and underinvesting was potentially fatal. The, the sin of omission. Yeah, but streaming was launched in 2007. I mean, this is when you downloaded Silverlight. It was 
PC only, not even Mac. It was about a thousand titles that nobody cared about. And in contrast, DVD, for, for some arcane legal reasons, the DVD service was every movie and TV show ever made. Was the, the streaming right service for sale doctrine, I think, was it was the, it was uh, yeah because because video stores like Blockbuster way back in the day could buy every DVD, so therefore so could Netflix. But streaming was a pretty limited content offering. But you know they stayed at it, stayed at it, and it was free. It was it was add on to your uh, DVD subscription. But it really wasn't until 2010 and 2011 that it was you know clear it was going to be successful, and then the company hit the gas from a from a content spend standpoint. So bet the company moves are very common when a company is in a terrible position. I mean, Apple betting the company on the iPod or the iMac or the iPhone. I mean, like the, the Mac OS 9 was a dead end platform and it was going nowhere. So it didn't actually cost much to bet the company. This cost a lot because you're reinvesting a lot of what otherwise could be free cash flow into something that it would be very difficult to try and understand the TAM. So how do you think about you know, at, at that time, an investor in Netflix, but now as a prospective investor in new companies on not only does this have product market fit, but I, I believe that this thing could be huge. What's your calculus around well, that? Well, I also say, by the way, it's also as a sometimes current public board member with companies who are going through the same calculation, which is how much do I forward invest in the future thing or, or you know, expanding the product roadmap and so that the value prop in three and five years is quite different than it is today in much bigger competitive modes. I do think it's really hard for most companies, but particularly for most public companies, to do that. So I think Netflix is an, is an extreme positive example. I, there are others as well. It is sort of mandatory. But I think m many companies, particularly once they get public, start playing defense, playing a little safe. The, such an emphasis, obviously, on quarterly earnings. And so the thought of reinvesting half of your profits into some unknown future thing is pretty daunting. The, do you remember, either for you and TCB at that moment or within the company for Netflix, like, what was the work that you did to get conviction that this new whole paradigm with a whole different business model, that the prize was big enough, that this would be so much bigger than our current market in DVD streaming, that it was worth this risk the company bet? You, you'll, you'll probably be disappointed in the answer because the question implies a, a level of detailed <laughs> quantitative analysis, maybe not, not in evidence. That, to me, is what makes great founding entrepreneurs, CEOs, read Envision a day when they would be not shipping DVDs. Now, actually, they still are today. Looking at the bandwidth expansion, and um, iPhone was also introduced in 07, but obviously there were, there were cell phones before that, you know, consumption on handheld devices. But it took a lot of guts to do that because you know, they recently talked about, particularly with the originals effort, that they're competing with studios that have been around for 100 years. And in the last decade, effectively, they, uh, in the original side, they built up a catalog to rival that. It took huge forward investments. Everybody who's a Netflix subscriber, in fact, benefited from that value being delivered because it was forward investing to provide great consumer delight. And then more subs allows you more spend more on content. More content allows you to get more subs and, and so on. Which is so interesting because that was so different from the Blockbuster model with the doctrine of first sale. Blockbuster and the first iteration of Netflix could just ride along with whatever Hollywood produced and not have to worry about investing 
all of that money, you know, all that dynamic that you then later learned of more subs, investing in more content, you could be a small DVD rental business and have access to everything. But the minute you moved to streaming, all of that changed. Like, yeah. Now, even early DVD days, it was not always totally clear that Netflix was going to be a runaway success. If you think way back when, it was requiring changing consumer behavior, something that a lot of companies contemplate. So yes, you could get all the DVDs in the world. And the, the advantage of the online model was you don't have physical stores, so you don't have the burden. Um, you have an infinite supply, so you're not limited to, uh, I think a typical blockbuster had like 800 titles or something. But the downside, though, was people for years got in their car and went down to Blockbuster. Or on the way home from work, Bob or Mary went by Blockbuster to get something to watch that night. The idea of the Netflix queue, which was list all the movies you, you want to watch. And then when we rolled out a subscription service, three at any time, you, you watch one, you return it, the next one shows up. That took a while to actually take in the consumer's minds. Because like, what, what do you mean? What am I, what is, what is this all about? Because you're asking them to shift their behavior, their model for how I think about what movie I'm getting. Yeah, I'm just saying it's going to be a spur of the moment. I don't want, I don't right. want to go, you know, when obviously the online, uh, now it's the whole online thing was the newer, <laughs> so you weren't spending hours and hours doing it. Blockbuster is considered a very intimidating company to compete against, but they were not consumer friendly. So their North Star was not delighting the customer and that and including the late fees. They also sort of maybe strangely were quite profitable at one point. And so that, that, that same issue, do you invest a massive piece of your physical store profit into this DVD online business right. or do you milk those economics? It took them a while. They ended up being a significant competitor for, for some period of time. And having a real advantage in the fact that if you want to go get another movie right away, instead of waiting four days to mail it back in and to get it back, you could just go to a store and swap it yes. instead of... But they also, they had a debt load, which is a whole other set of issues that I think constrained their ability to forward invest. They had a series of different CEOs who maybe pursued different strategies. And then some of the stuff they did was, in, in hindsight, to me at least, was just harebrained. They, at one point... Their solution to digital delivery was you would go into the store and download a movie onto your, you know, USB <laughs> or whatever. And you're like, wait, what? That's not, that's not, that's not consumer convenience. But the other thing I'd say, even about the streaming business and Netflix, it surprised me to this day that, because it was not a secret, you know, it took probably four years to really become a much more compelling value prop. But you know, the company, we're doing that in the public eye. And we, we can talk about the financing in, in 2011 was due to a dislocating event. That's where but, we're, um, we're I, going there next. I, I still am surprised. We did have an activist investor in Netflix at one point, Carl Icahn. But I, I'm surprised. Who was the same activist investor in Blockbuster, right? Around the time they were competing with Netflix? I don't know if it was around the I same that, time. I think that is right. Yeah. He was, he yeah. was part of but the I, Blockbuster. So, um, the fact that a strategic acquirer did not try to come after Netflix. Still surprises me to this day because it was, once it was pretty clearly successful. You just wait for it to become cheap enough and then try and take it out. You would think. And then, so and then there was, you know, there was that opportunity uh, in 2011. Yeah. We're building out the Acquired Merch store. And uh, <laughs> right now we just have t-shirts that say Acquired. This is not a commercial. This you is not get a this commercial. Opportunity. But we're, we're, we really want to add They're very low margin. That we don't our, make a lot of money on these things. Have our favorite quotes from, you know, the years we've done the show on it. One of our favorite quotes is, 
Barry McCarthy's quote from this time. So what happened for folks who don't remember is the, the Quickster, the spinoff of the DVD business that Wall Street was not very receptive to. Public uh, backlash, it strategically made sense, but received very poorly. And the company had to like very quickly recover and figure out how do we not abandon all these customers that... that and I believe the story, you can correct us if it's, if it's wrong, was Barry McCarthy, the CFO, was set to retire. And then this happened. And he said on an earnings call... And when asked why he wasn't retiring, he said, you don't leave your friends in the middle of a knife fight. <laughs> Was, is that true? Did that... I think so, yeah. yeah. Just to broaden out the time. So in 2011, so it's launched streaming in 07, build the content catalog, support more devices, including partnering with Microsoft on the Xbox as a delivery mechanism at one point, and then Sony and uh, Nintendo. And then ultimately having Netflix everywhere on all devices, including a remote control in your hotel room. But in 2011, oh, and then forward investing in content for streaming without charging for it. So it was bundled in with your DVD subscription. 2011, two important strategic decisions, one to start charging for streaming. In the consumer's mind, read that as a big price increase. And then rebrand the DVD service as Quickster and spin it out. That, that part actually was, that decision was changed and so it remained as part of the company. But the price increase, to your point, I think, was the right strategic decision because it would allow the company to forward invest more in content and get that flywheel even going further. But there was a great hue and cry. I think consumers often re respond emotionally to price increases. Or redesigns. Yeah, or but there's actually the irony there is that historic customers were different points in price increase in Netflix's history Folks were grandfathered for a year or two, mm. and some of those people canceled. Well, well you're not. <laughs> they didn't actually have, but just. It the, wasn't the happening press. to them. But um, so the stock was down 70%. I think probably had. And uh, that's uncorrelated with the public markets. This was not. This is 2011. This is benign, benign time. Yeah. Right, right now, when you say the stock was down 70%, you're like, yeah, so is everyone else. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, but also from a business standpoint, I think 22 million subs went to 19 million. It was a nervous point in time. The company had just, was just about to launch in the UK to pull back on that. It ended up pretty quickly stabilizing and then subs grew fairly soon thereafter. If you think back, it's super easy to say, oh, that's what, you know, easy decision. This is when you let a public investment we let in, a, the, in, a pipe in the company. There. But you think about, from a business model standpoint, big fixed content obligations, shrinking subscriber base, Oops. That's when operating um, leverage goes wrong. Yeah. Like you want operating leverage when you're a high growth business, but as soon as that's not true, oh my God, this is a big problem. Yeah. The underlying analysis, well, you know, streaming is the future. We're a clear leader. We're providing tremendous value to the consumer. Some of them are canceling right now, but that, that, you know, we'll, we'll be through that. At the time, Netflix was US and had just launched Latin America. And so there were big growth vectors across the globe. You couldn't extrapolate data points because we weren't in Europe or various parts of uh, Asia Pacific, but you could envision this value prop being, being uh, applicable there. That subsequent international growth story for Netflix is, I think, one of the not as well-known and told growth stories, but it's one of the greatest of all time. I mean, how many countries is Netflix in now? 195, I believe. <laughs> there are well, not many it, more it, countries than that in the it world. Had been, it had been everywhere other than China, because China has some constraints. Um, <laughs> but I think it now also ex uh, excludes Russia. 
Can I generalize a little bit? So we've got the leaders of the incredible products and growth teams in the room. How would you generalize some learnings around when it makes sense to continue to forward invest in something that's not yet proven and when the experiment is showing enough data where you're like, let's focus on the core business? There's a bias. I don't think great technology companies cannot forward invest in both the current product roadmap as well as you can't run the risk that this is true of Facebook when they had no mobile ad unit. Zero. It just gone public. Yep. Entire world, you know. So could you can trade you, it down can massively? You, can you not IPO. can you afford not to invest there? I have a, a dinosaur story company called Ascend Communications, which was one of the original building blocks of the internet. There was an Ascend box in every point of presence across the country as it was being built out. But that was actually it was a technology called inverse multiplexing, whose first application was in data networking and sold a million dollars. They forward invested specific features for points of presence in, in building out the internet service provider network, and that was you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. To me, it's a matter of degree. How much can you experiment with new things? Um, and obviously today, as opposed to back then, I mean, you can iterate and test a lot. But I also do think using, using the consumer as the North Star, everything you do, even if there's short-term financial hit, should be with that, keeping that consumer in mind as opposed to nickel and diming them along the way. It was counterintuitive at the time, but if you think back to the old, well, the, actually not the old cable model, current cable model, and AOL and others, it was or is almost impossible to cancel. You had to call the help desk, and they would try to oh, bait switch John you Will, and hang John on. famously used to say something like, he would look at the percentage of revenue that was spent on like customer support or customer service, and he would fire people if it was too high. He's like, I want it to be as low as possible because I want, I, I want to have the worst customer support possible. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, and obviously that, that's one strategy. Um, and sort and of that's a, why we all love cable companies Yeah, yeah sort of the short-term the short, the short maximization. But I was going to say, when Netflix first rolled out the, the DVD offering and then streaming, it was one-click cancel online, which is viewed as insane by Wall Street because, well, you're going to make it easier for your consumers to churn and the answer was near term, yes, but they'll come back. I've um, probably churned as a Netflix customer 50 times. And wow. I'm, and I'm currently a Netflix customer. 50? I mean, I'm probably this like outlier case. I thought this case, was a but... successful podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, the only economically rational thing to do is always cancel all of your subscriptions all the time. And then always feel free to restart whenever you want to watch a piece of content. Okay. I don't know if that's well, a... I, as a board member, can't do that probably. <laughs> <laughs> it would be viewed as disloyal. But, but you could imagine Netflix making that call like enabled this weird consumer behavior that I have where I don't even think about it. And yet, like I've, I've paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to Netflix because I trust them as a brand that, that yeah, I, and, I have a good deal with them. Yeah, and, and to the point, if it was a Herculean effort every time you went to cancel, you might just... Like, once you successfully cancel, you may oh, not come back. Never come back. You should yeah. see my tweets about the New York Times. Anyone ever try and cancel your Time subscription? That is a, that is a nightmare. Yeah. That is very difficult. Yeah. But, it, yeah. but it, you know, again, particularly as public companies, well, another modern-day example on, on Netflix and two things. Analysts can't seem to get through the fact that are you going to release things in the theaters? That's where people want to see movies. And, um, they, you know, they'll occasionally do a, a, a limited window, but it's not where people want it. If people want to go to the movie theater, great, but the vast majority of consumers see it at home. And, and 
I think it's because Hollywood has the ear of a lot of analysts and they can't seem to get through that. It's, it's, not, it's not actually a major issue at all. It's just kind of a minor issue. And the other thing is the binging model. And company articulates that some of the biggest hits like Squid Games be hard to envision unless there was a lot of talk in the zeitgeist, a South Korean drama being successful across many of those 195 countries if it was one episode every week. So binging allows a you know, massive awareness hit, a positive hit. And of course, yeah, somebody could binge through it and cancel if they so desire. It's a legacy question. And if you're an ad-supported model, then maybe, you know, maybe like Game of Thrones, you do want appointment TV once a week. But I think most of the world's moved beyond. But they still get questions as to why not, why not release you know, one episode a week. I want to maybe ask Ben's question in a, in a slightly different way. Ben's question of, you know, when should you forward investment for growth as a tech company? When should you not? We have an audience of product and growth folks in the room. I want to ask him maybe in a more native to TCV as an investor kind of way that I think might also shed light as operators for companies. Many, if not most, of TCV's legendary investments have followed this Netflix-like path. I'm thinking Peloton now. I'm thinking Airbnb during the pandemic. I'm thinking Zillow through all this. You know, you are not, as a firm, and, and you personally as an investor, not at all shy about making a call when the chips are down for a company that this company is going to persevere and continue to being a fast grower in the long run. I'm sure you don't always make the call to do that. What are the key factors as you think about whether you're going to double down on some of those situations versus not? This will sound like motherhood and apple pie. It starts with the CEO and the team. And you know, I think particularly the public markets swing wildly from genius to idiot. Folks, it's the same team. <laughs> um, and you, you know, were telling me before, it's always funny, you can see whatever the story, the narrative the press wants to perpetrate by what picture they, they pick. And it depends, you know, what, what cycle we're currently right. in, if it's the frowning picture or the smiling picture of the genius CEO. But it's the same CEO. I, 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 I haven't tried to prove that scientifically, but I'm pretty <laughs> convinced it's accurate. The same person, but different picture. We start as a private investor. Often the teams aren't complete. And then over, over multiple years, there's, you know, there's change if you if you read Reed's book on no rules rules, but the visionary CEO who hires superb people and it sounds simple, and then when you work with them over a long period of time, you're gaining confidence and that that may actually where we the whole decision ends right I mean starts and ends you know it's also really trying to reassess the product customer delight competitive moats maybe it would be the, the second big variable. Uh, and the team gets into the ability to execute. I mean, there are many companies across technology history who had equal opportunities. Some execute superbly, some don't. Market cap difference is, is quite dramatic. I say you have to, particularly if you're buying more of a public situation that is under severe pressure, you have to be comfortable being viewed as an idiot for some period of time. Which is wholly counter to everything that evolutionarily has led humans to where we are. Like, we're the people who were the descendants of people who were not viewed as idiots. And so it's really hard to, to like rewire your brain to be like, I'm super comfortable being ostracized. Yeah. 
Well, I wouldn't say it's like, it's, it's not always easy. I'm saying you, you, <laughs> you don't you, say it's fun. Yeah, and it, it obviously derives from have, you need to have really high conviction. And, therefore, and you can't be viewed as an idiot forever because, right. um, you know. Eventually, if you're non-consensus, you need to become consensus. Yeah. But you need to have placed yeah. that better. Or most of, in that quadrant of consensus, non-consensus, right, wrong, you know, you, you have to be right no matter yes. <laughs> what you do. Ben talked about this on a recent episode, but I, I love it. I think it's true. You, you have to be non-consensus and right. But you can't be in the non-consensus part of it for too, too long, or else that becomes yeah. wrong, even if you're right. <laughs> well, that, that's the other angle, and you know, hopefully the current environment is, is an example. When you look back at market dislocating events, like the global financial crisis, you know, or the Netflix history in 2011 as an example, when you look back at them, they're actually pretty short. When you're in the middle of it, and the clouds are rolling in, the thunder and lightning, you know, it can seem really daunting. But... I can't think of a single great technology company that didn't struggle at some point. I, I refer to it as the desert of disillusionment. You know, they're, they were in this nice plush forest. They went and now it's in the desert and there's scary animals and there's no water and, and some, some might die. But I think of Netflix went through that. You know, Expedia in 9-11, there were negative booking days. Think about that. Not like revenue slowed down. Airbnb, negative booking days. Again, not all come Yeah, now we look back it. at that now, yeah. and that was like a month. Yeah. But it probably felt like oh, 10 and, years. And, you know, Facebook, no, no mobile ad units. I'm trying to think of other, you know. Those are, uh, the Facebook uh, example is a great Z- one. Too. Zillow went through global financial crisis, COVID shutdown, reopen. I mean, just Rich is a veteran of many crises in his 25 years. So as an investor, you can say, well, I'm going to be dispassionately reanalyzing the whole situation. As a CEO leader, you have to be a leader. I'd say maybe at TCB and other investment firms now, you also have to try to lead and hold hands a little bit because this is a generally a young person's business, and that means most investment professionals may not have lived through the global financial crisis. They got here after that. They don't know whether the world is really going to come to an end, or, you know, or it just yeah, you know, or it just seems like it. I think that's where we would love to end with you and to spend a few minutes of. We got a chance to chat with Howard Marks recently and his son, Andrew. Other than Howard, I can't think of anybody else we've talked to who's had a four-decade-long investing career. So you've seen, you know, here we are in 2022, end of 2022. You've seen times like this probably at least four times in your career. And every one of these downturns is different and idiosyncratic in its own way. So it's, of course, it's not like, right. oh, this is exactly like it was last time, so we'll be over in three and a half months. You know, they're, they're all special different. Yeah. And I, I'd say there are some that are tech-specific, internet boom, bust. Global financial crisis, I describe as sort of a tech got sideswiped a little bit, but didn't get run over. Current thing, after, after many, many years of you know, uniformly positive investor psychology, it's a little bit more front and center. The, the Got hit uh, by the truck. bus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then there's also, God, as I think about it, you know, so I started during a bear market for small cap. There was the crash of 87. The markets were crushed in 90 when the first Gulf War. Um, I forget when long-term capital management, when people thought um, that was was the end of the financial system. Global financial crisis. Pandemic. Pandemic is a... There's no playbook on how to invest during a pandemic. That was a that was a first. And then yeah. it did the opposite of what we all thought. Yeah, I'm, I'm old, but I wasn't there in, in uh, during the you know, <laughs> during the last during pandemic, the, 1917 or whenever it was. Yeah. So, so I'm curious, what you know, especially for the folks in the room who are operating at companies, what advice would you have for say you're working at a 
small cap public tech company right now and your stock's down 70%? I'd say don't take it personally. By the way, you know, somebody would say, well, it doesn't mean that XYZ is not going to go down another 70% because the old joke, stock down 90%, it's down 70%, down 70%. <laughs> but it's short term, again, assuming, assuming the company's well funded. Right? It's like a Kind of a basic critical assumption. Just focus on on the business. Ignore the ignore the press. Assume vast majority of what the press writes is inaccurate. That's been my experience. And stay passionate about the roadmap and delivering value to consumers, and all will be well. It may take three months. It may take two years. I don't know. I love that point too. You know, it's I hadn't focused on that, but the very beginning of my career was in the. I started in 2007 after college at the peak and then the global financial crisis. It wasn't oh, it that was long. your fault. Yeah, it was my fault. It was exactly <laughs> my fault. But it wasn't that long. You know, it felt okay. like forever I, at the time. I'm not trying to say it doesn't weigh heavily upon the, the psyche when it happens. And actually, in the investment business, that's one of the things you have to guard against. Like, okay, you're seemingly getting beat up every day. It can make you defensive when actually now is the time to... Every crisis has been a good period of time to invest. Now, not across all companies, but Google started in 2000. People thought it was an insane valuation at 70 pre. I'm serious, yeah, that right. was the chatter. Oh. Um, Tesla almost died in 2008 when you know auto industry was being bailed out. And so you, just as you look back, there are failures, but it's proven to be a good period of time. Amazon, but, absent the, the Joy Covey vehicle of putting together the, the convert, while they were a public company, they would have gone out of business. Yeah, you think about Amazon went public in 96? 190 million in revenues or something like that? The scale is insane. But so it's hard to separate the negative psychic aspect, but it's really important too. Great. It's a great place to leave it. That is a great place to leave it. Well, Jay, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, TCV. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.